on the eve of Christmas Eve. Are we working? We live? We good? We are live. We're on good. the eve of Christmas Eve. On the eve of New Year's Eve 2020, which by the way, people are, can't wait till 2020 is over. 2021 is going to be so much better. Hopefully. And they had the hopefully on. And I'm just like, you know what? 2020, it could be so much worse. And I get it. There's people that are battling sicknesses and, and all that stuff. And I feel for that. But 2020 could have been so, so, so much worse. 2021 will not be any better unless you decide to look in the mirror and say, okay, uh, it's up to me. You know, 99% of this thing is up to me, my mindset, uh, what I'm, how I'm feeling about myself, how I'm feeling about what I'm doing, um, how much energy I bring to the table, how, my, how much positivity and gratitude I bring to the table every single day. Uh, and, but just especially over the last like two or three weeks when people have said, uh, man, 2020, can't wait till it's over. I'm just like, in 2020 has been so hard. I'm like, it, it could be 1000 times worse for 99% of us. Let's be honest. Yes. There's the 1% that have, you know, really, really probably been hit hard. Um, but it could be way, way worse. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that 2021 isn't worse. Right. But that being said too, just reflecting before we're going to get into some Q and a, we're, we're podcasting from my house today. So we're looking at the lake out there and seeing some birds and eagles flying geese fly or whatever. Uh, Actually, no eagles yet. Eagles were a couple days ago. But filming from my house today. Um, been been taking a little bit of time off. Uh, we got a big deal that's in the pipeline that we're supposed to close mid January. So been working on that. Been working half days from home. Really haven't left my house in rider like five days, yeah. which is impressive. I haven't taken a break at all since August 2019 when uh, my now wife and I went to Paris. So it's kind of been nice to be able to sleep in until like seven seven thirty. Uh, stay up till you know ten eleven thirty. Read some books haven't read much many i've read more in the last like week like from a book um which i'm reading uh right now the rjr and nabisco book and how uh the the leveraged buyout of that company back in the late 80s which is another recommendation now that i'm reading it i'm halfway through and it, you know the first half of the book i'm just kind of rambling here but that first half of that book it's about private equity and uh investing and there's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in it but uh the first maybe quarter of the book is all about the background of RJR and Visco and, um, you know, like KKR and leverage buyouts, um, and private equity. Um, and then like where I'm at right now in the middle of half of the book is where they're really starting to hash out the deals in terms of the deal. And there's multiple, uh, buyers looking to, to buy them and take the company from being a publicly traded company and taking it private. Um, and they're working on raising the funds for it and uh, working on the terms. And it's just super, super interesting book. So if you're into private equity, if you're into the books that I'm reading, because I know it's a question I get. I think last week, actually, we had a question on what are your top five books. I think this one's sneaking into the top 10 by the time it's said and done. Um, maybe even top seven, maybe top five. I don't think it'll break my top three, but um, it's it's creeping up there. Really good book. It's long. It's like 520 pages, but I'm like, I'm into it now where I can't put it down. So I've been able to do that. Um, you know, and think a lot about 2021 and what's coming up, uh, 2020 for us, just looking back has been, uh, unbelievable year. I mean, number one, everyone's healthy, um, in my family and, you know, close friends set and, and all that stuff. So that's important. And then we started a painting company. We're on pace to do just south of a million dollars in our first 12 months of operations. Um, we didn't close any deals or buy any apartments this year, but we've, um, you know, pushed the envelope and we, you know, fourth quarter of this year of 2020, we were able to get something under contract and hopefully closing on it at the very beginning of 2021. And then we have some other deals in the pipeline that we kind of shoved through, got into our pipeline and started shoving through our pipeline quarter three, quarter four. Um, so I got married this year. So 2020 has been an awesome year. And I think, you know, we all can find a lot of awesome things out of it. But once again, it's 
it's what you make it out to be. Uh, I wasn't going to just go in my COVID ball and die in a corner. Um, and I wasn't going to live in fear. And, and I know that, you know, it's easy to let fear and let the media and let all this stuff overcome uh, your life. But at the same time, it's like, we only have so much time on this earth anyways. And, you know, also when you look at um, some of the most successful people, whatever the field is, they make their biggest strides and their biggest gains and all this stuff in times of panic and in times of fear. And so the, immediately when this thing happened, I knew we weren't going to be able to close deals because, right away because of um, some of the thresholds you had to meet as far as like how much you had to put down like back in March and April. I mean, it was, you know, and the reserves that you had to come to the table with, it just didn't make sense. And people just stopped showing their properties. So I'm like, all right, what can I do? I started the painting company, right? And uh, right in the middle of that, I mean, literally two weeks after, uh, actually it might've been seven, seven days, 10 days after the, the, sh the world shut down, um, I formed Prime Painters. And uh, we got started and got rocking and rolling. So just been doing a lot of planning for 2021. Um, been doing that since the third quarter, really. And, uh, you know, kind of finalizing some of those things because we really want to push the envelope in Prime Painters, take that to a two and a half million dollar company um, in 2021, uh, get up to 2000 units by the end of 2021, which right now we're sitting at four, just shy of 500, uh, 482. And we'll be at, uh, if this deal closes, we'll be at about 700. Um, and then with what we have in the pipeline, I think, you know, by the middle of the year, we can for sure be at, you know, 1100, 1300, if some things fall into place, will it happen? I don't know, but we're going to fight for it. So that being said, that's a little bit of a recap, uh, you know, just as we wind down 2020, two days to go, December 30th, December 30th, right? Yeah. New Year's Eve, Eve, we're on the eve of New Year's Eve. Um, so I think right now we can jump into some questions. I had a lot of questions come in actually after the last one ended that people wanted to sneak in the first episode. So some of those rolled over to this episode. And then, um, you know, I just basically yesterday I said, Hey, Ryder, we want to do a podcast tomorrow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, once again, I want to do one once a week. Uh, um, so, uh, we got a snowstorm here in Wisconsin. So I'm like, Hey, let's just do it by tomorrow. So I, I posted last night, Hey, get your questions in. And we got, you know, a handful of questions. I wasn't able to take all of them, but we got like another 13 or so 14 or so that we'll try to cover if you're joining us live please share the link that'd be awesome if you're watching the recording please share the link that would be awesome would mean a lot subscribe to the channel we're going to be doing the uh the podcast live on youtube going forward try to bring more youtube content over uh, the next year so question number one for today how many people we got live right now? I'm always four. curious on that. Four. Okay. So our number's down from last year. The first episode is always like, it's it's just yeah. like a trap. It's like, oh yeah, we can do this. And then all of a sudden you get four views, four live viewers. But um, I, we got a lot of, we got a lot of great feedback on the first episode. Um, so we're going to roll with it and we're going to get a lot of great feedback on this episode. What's the process of getting loans approved for buying your first investment property? So for the first, first property, a lot of times, you know, I think back, okay, well, well to get into the the shoes of the person that's probably asking this question, I'm going to go back to what it was like for me, right? Well, I had to find someone else to help invest in the deal and secure the debt, right? I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do that alone when I first started, even on a four unit, that was $200,000. So if you're in a position where you can't get a loan by yourself, you got to go find a partner, whether that's, um, you know, it, it can be an equity partner or just someone that's willing to, for some type of payment, back the debt on it for X amount of time. Um, but you have to be able to find someone for me, you know, my family invested, it wasn't, it wasn't like a forgivable loan. It wasn't like, they still have equity. They, they invested $20,000. I invested $20,000 and we went out and we were able to get the loan. Um, so I, and I wouldn't have been able to do it alone. So I, if it weren't for my family, I would have had to go and hit the streets 
earlier than what I did because now I'm raising money from all types of people, right? But I would have had to hit the streets earlier to be able to find someone to help me get the loan. Uh, and I guess, I don't know if that's the question as far as like, how do you get it? But you might have to find a partner. Diving more into the minutia of what all you need and the kind of like what banks look for. I mean, banks are gonna look for a personal financial statement. So you need to stay on top of that stuff. I update my personal financial statement quarterly. Um, every single month I'm reconciling on Quicken. I'm reconciling my bank accounts, my personal bank accounts, right? And then quarterly I use I use all that stuff and I use the value of our investments and all that stuff. And I, um, as we're paying down debt, I, I basically revalue everything. Um, and I update my quarterly financial statement because the bank is going to ask for that. And as you start to grow, it's like, you're needing to supply that information all the time and it needs to be up to date every quarter. So that's why we do it quarterly. Um, so get your personal finances straightened out because you're going to need it. Right. And even if it's nothing to start with, like you got to have your income statement and your balance sheet, the personal ones, um, at your personal level, uh, you're going to need. Of the, of the property that you're buying, because we're talking property here, of the property that you're buying, you're gonna need rent roll, you're gonna need the trailing 12 months, and the trailing 12 months, what that is, is the last 12 months of operations. It takes seasonality out of it. So it's not just like, if, if you're looking to buy the deal in August of you know 2021, that means you would've needed August 2021 financials all the way back through September 2020. Does that make sense? August 2021. It, you'd go back all the way through September 20th, 20th. Uh, you'd take October 2020, uh, November 2020, December 2020, January 2021, February 2021, March 2021, all the way through to August 2021 so that the bank, the lender, can see uh, the performance of the property, right? You're gonna need uh, delinquencies and what those delinquencies are currently and what they've been over the last 30, 60, 90 days, uh, 90 days plus. Um, they're going to want to know if there's been bad debt. They're going to want to know your business plan. They're going to want to know the condition of the property and what upside might be out there. So you need to kind of have like a one page, two page business plan of what you're going to do once you own it to maintain the value. If it's already a really great asset or, uh, what you're going to need to do step-by-step step kind of to, uh, add value. And then what that added value is going to represent to the financials, right? So when I say what that value is going to represent to the financials, how much the rent's going to go up when you redo a kitchen. How much are uh, the expenses going to go down if you do low flow toilets and put in, um, you know, energy efficient light fixtures in the common areas, right? So you, so you got to have kind of a plan showing the way. Um, and not everyone does it this way. I'm very organized. I think that when you're organized, when you're when you've got a plan and when you can uh, talk about that plan and show that plan to a lender, they're gonna be like, wow, this guy's this guy or gal is ahead of the game. They came here with a very, you know, uh, uh, professional one or two page packet package showing me what they're going to do. A lot of people don't do that. It'll set yourself apart. So that those are some of the, the things um, and what the process is like. Obviously, the bank's going to get appraisals. They might need an environmental um, on the property. They might need a survey on the property, uh, which your attorney or you know legal or the title company can help you, you know, get all set up. So that's that. I hope that answered your question. Whoever asked that question you're watching, you can always ask another question or ask it another way uh, if I didn't touch on it on the right way. Question number two, do you track your personal transactions daily with Excel? I don't I do not do them daily. Um, every month at the end of the month or towards the end of the month, I'll reconcile. So I'll go through and make sure, you know, and I find mistakes on the banks, you know, a handful of times a year uh, or the credit card companies and stuff like that where there's a false charge or not my charge or someone charged too much or double charge, whatever. Most people don't catch that stuff. Um, I'm, I'm on top of that stuff.
Um, and even though it's a small amount of money, a lot of times I'm just on top of it. So monthly I do my stuff. Um, I'm reconciling my loans that I have personally, uh, making sure that I I've sort separated how much principal I've paid off versus how much interest, making sure that my principal balances on those loans are current and correct with the statements. So I'm always getting the statements at the end of the month, bank accounts, credit cards, all that stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm balancing them to make sure that they're correct. They match a statement and that the statement isn't wrong and there isn't something wrong that's, um, going on on the other end with the other parties, which does happen. Um, and sometimes just to stay caught up because it, get, it can kind of get to be a lot if you wait till the end of the month. Um, I will do it like mid month. I'll, I'll start doing it up until that point and then finish it up once I get the statements and all that stuff. Um, but then once again, if you're on top of that, it's easy to do your personal financial because you'll just get in a routine and then you know that every quarter you've got to add the personal fin uh, fi um, financial statement to that list while you're reconciling your accounts. Um, so yeah, next question. Joel, what's up, man? Good morning. Ryder's having some issues here with the screen. I don't know what you guys are seeing. But, uh, no, no, that's just for you so you can reach out. Because okay, chat. so they can't see that? Yeah, no, okay. I can't see the full question either. Yeah, you're right. Let me just close that up. I mean, you know, last week, if you watched this, my face was kind of blurry. At the end of the show, Ryder goes, oh, crap, I didn't, what did you not do? I didn't, it wasn't all the way focused. It, was it wasn't all the way focused on my face, so I sit down. Ryder realizes three minutes in, right? He's going to set it up before you came in. So he so set all this thing up before I came in the room. I come in the room. I sit down and start the podcast. He recognizes three minutes after. He's like, oh, I didn't want to just say something. I'm like, dude, my face is blurry the whole time. It wasn't bad. It wasn't uh, bad, but it's hopefully it's better today. So It's great. I got to give Ryder some crap every now and then. Uh, how long did you study real estate before buying your first property? I started getting books. I started going to seminars. I started getting around people and networking with people who were doing what I wanted to be doing, uh, in 2009. And I didn't buy my first property until 2013. Um, so it was about three and a half, four years of learning. Um, and I think I was slow on the learning curve. I mean, I know that there's guys out there that like, you know, going back, that's the one thing I could have started earlier because I, I could have started implementing more aggressively earlier. Part of it was though in 2009, I mean, I was a sophomore in college, so I was playing college football, right? And that was my focus. I love playing college football. So to me, I, I didn't necessarily want to get started then. Um, but even through that time though, I did start to implement what I was learning from the standpoint of like, I was looking at deals. I'd still go out and look at deals. I would, you know, get the financials on them. I would get the rent rolls. I'd say, hey man, if I own this thing, how could I, you know, I could probably find someone to cut the grass for less. I could find a you know, a lesser cost for tra trash removal um, and all that stuff. Um, so I was already implementing what I was learning. I just didn't actually pull the trigger on a deal until 2013. And that was just my timing. So some people might need to learn for seven years. Some people are probably able to pick up. I mean, really, if you're in a position where you really want to make a change and really want to go after this thing, there's no reason that you cannot start with zero knowledge and halfway through 2021 already have a property under contract or closed on halfway through 2021. No, no doubt about it in my mind, but it's a matter of getting after it, putting yourself in a position to learn. Uh, but then even more than, even more important than learning is executing, going out and uh, implementing what you learn, starting to take the steps. Those are always, you know, people are always asking me, how come you read less now? It seems like you read less books. And I'm like, cause I spent so much time early on reading 
that now when I'm reading, I'm reading operating agreements, I'm reading financial statements, I'm, I'm reading um, certain like current events and all this stuff. I'm, I'm doing less reading in books because I'm like, I'm writing a freaking book now, right? Um, so uh, there's, there's gotta be a fine line too between like, don't just sit there and consume, 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 consume as you need to and then go out and start implementing because you're gonna learn far more mm -hmm. by being out in the field and doing this stuff than you will sitting behind a book or a computer don't get me wrong it's important i sell classes i sell uh books so i'm a fan of like you guys buying that stuff right but at the same time no book or class is ever going to be the different ultimate difference maker if you're not willing to put in the work to go out and do it so, but then at the same time, I'm always studying. I'm always learning. This deal we got under contract right now, I mean, I've learned a ton. Every deal that I do, I learn more and more. It's like, you know, when we closed on 199 units, I learned way more. And I knew, I felt I felt like coming out of that deal, and that was the last deal we did, which was a year and two months ago, uh, the 199 unit. I came out of that deal once we closed. I'm like, I learned two times more during these last 90 days of closing that deal than I previously even knew in real estate. And I already had hundreds of units at that point. And I already had transactions that, you know, we're in the, in, in the million, seven figures. Um, and, and, and the same thing with this deal, this, this big deal that we got on our contract now, you know, is, um, somewhere between 25 and 50 million bucks. And I've learned more on this deal than I feel like I've ever learned, uh, combined. Joel, just real quick asked do you, uh, he asked in the live chat, do you have a real estate license, realtor license or use a realtor for purchasing properties? Um, I do have a license and, and Spalding Group is a brokerage, um, but to me, I'm indifferent. I don't care if I'm the, the, the realtor or not. I mean, I, to build what I'm trying to build, I need more than just myself. I need other people. So it is what it is. It, it helps because of certain fees and stuff that I do qualify for in certain transactions, but by no means do you need it to get started. Next question. Real estate, valuation of properties, due diligence and financials. Ryder, do you know who asked this question? No. Ava did. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I know Ava, I'm 99% sure Ava asked this question, our, our controller at Spalding Group. Um, I've, and I don't necessarily know the question. I just wanted to <laughs> include it because it's, it's not necessarily a question, but real estate valuation of properties, due diligence, and financials. Um, and I think what she's kind of hinting at is what we talk about all the time. Real estate and business is crazy, right? So whether it's, I'll talk a little bit business side and I'll talk a little bit uh, real estate side. So real estate right now, the going cap rates are between, you know, five and a half to 6%. Um, and uh, the cap rates are between five and a half and 6%. And what that means is once you find the net operating income, you then apply the cap rate to it, which is kind of like an inverse calculation that you have to do. It's not a multiplier, it's an inverse multiplier essentially. Um, but you take the cap rate to the NOI and that's how you figure out the value of the building. And a lot of it is a financial game essentially, where if you, you gotta be smart enough, where if you're putting in, uh, if you're, if you're tearing, if you're completely remodeling a unit, that's going to take the apartment rent from, you know, $800 a month up to $1,100 a month, that expense or that outflow of dollars you have going out towards that project isn't actually on your income statement. Uh, going towards your net operating income, it's below the net operating income as a, as a capex figure, and uh, what what a lot of people don't real a lot of people don't realize that the difference between like what's a capex and what's uh, what's actually an uh, an expense. An expense is a reoccurring thing that's always going to happen once the property stabilized. 
So what we do is we're always diligent. And the reason that we can go through and and, and get really good deals is because we're, we're playing the accounting game, how the accounting game is supposed to be played. Because um, investments into the property to, to increase revenues or lower expenses are not actual, uh, they're not actual expenses that, that, that go towards the net operating income. So what we will do is we'll make these investments. And then as time goes on, our rents increase and our expenses will stabilize and there'll be less going out from a CapEx standpoint, but we'll have our revenues, they've gone up. We'll have the operating expenses subtracting from those revenues, which give us the NOI. Now the operating expenses are things like the on-site management, so payroll, it's the insurance costs, it's the repair, the general repairs and maintenance to fix an appliance, to fix flooring, uh, to, 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 to fix a leak, to unclog a toilet, to, um, you know, uh, do touch up paint of a unit when a tenant moves out of a unit that's already been you know remodeled for us is, is how we handle that. Um, contracted services, so lawn mowing, pest control, uh, elevator contracts, if you have those. Um, what else we have there? Administrative costs so like office supplies and, and uh, costs for your software. That's all operational expenses. So you're going to take the revenue minus the operational expenses. Then you're going to have the NOI. The NOI is what's going to give you um, the NOI and the cap rate is what's going to give you the value. So a lot of times we're able to really shift the NOI drastically and increase it. And for every dollar that falls to the NOI that we can increase the NOI, that's about 16 bucks that it's going to add to the value of the building. In the vet, when I'm saying the value, that's the purchase price or what you can go refinance against or what you can go sell it for. So a lot of this is, a, is an accounting game and, and being smart with the dollars that you have and then looking at those dollars and say, okay, is this an actual regular expense? Or is this, a, is this an expense that's going into the asset to make the asset more valuable, as Ava says, and um, to increase the rent or drop expenses? And it's more of like something that's going to come out of the uh, cash flow and be a cash out item every five years or every 10 years or every 15 years. It's not a normal, regular thing like lawn mowing is. Lawn mowing is a regular, normal thing that's an actual expense. Now with some of these properties, we're dropping down to, you know, towards a 5% cap rate. So if we're at a 5% cap rate, now every dollar that drops to the bottom line is, is one, it's basically one divided by 5%. So one divided by 0 0.05 gives you 20. So now you've increased it 20 bucks, the value of the property. So if you can go through and let me, I'm going to, I'm going to get my, my calculator out really quick. So when I'm looking down, that's what I'm looking at. But now when we're going through and let's say we have. Uh, let's say we have a 400 unit apartment building and let's say we can raise rents $20, right? So we got 400 units times 20, that's 8,000, that's 8,000, right? 8,000 times, uh, times 12 for annual, cause it's an annual number. The NOI has to be on an annual basis when you apply the cap rate to it in order to find the value, because it's basically figuring out what someone is going to pay for a cash flow. Right for for cash flow into someone's pocket, what's an investor willing to pay? So ninety six thousand is the answer there. So we took four hundred units, multiplied by twenty, we got eight thousand. That's eight thousand dollars a month more of revenue. That revenue theoretically, most of that's dropping to the bottom line if it's just because the rents are under market. Eight thousand dollars a month times 12, 12 months is ninety six thousand dollars. Let's take a six percent cap rate to that. That's one point six million dollars of value that you just added to the deal. So if you bought that deal for, you know, uh, you bought that deal for 30 million, now it's worth 31.6 million. 
a lot of times we'll go through and you know another thing that might might be so like you might have people that have pets in the apartments already that you're buying and so what we do is on the lease renewal we're going to add our pet fee i think in some states you can't do this and add a pet fee wisconsin you can so we're going to add a pet fee well if you got a once again if you have a hundred unit apartment building and let's say uh 30 of the tenants have pets so that'd be 30 units 30 units times 30 dollars that's monthly is 900 times it by 12 that's 10,080 divide by 0 0.06 the 0 0.06 once again is a six percent cap rate that's $180,000 of value you just unlocked there because the increase of the NOI and then you take the, the cap rate Ryder does this make sense to you yes. if it's making sense to yep. you you're a beginner a little bit too but you're pretty sharp yep. um, not saying our listeners aren't sharp um, but so so is this making sense yeah, I've, I've heard, yeah, I've heard it. yeah and, and you've heard it a lot of times from me too um, now you you divide that by you divide that ten thousand eight hundred divide that by if it's a five percent cap rate depending on where you're at that's two hundred and sixteen thousand dollars. Now if you're starting to be able to do multiple things at once like raise the rents twenty dollars a month for just standard as a standard because they're under market you don't need to do anything in apartments and you're able to do the pet fees on top of it right well now now you've added one point eight million dollars right now if you can drop the water bill by ten dollars a unit per month by doing low flow right you might have another you might have another five hundred thousand there right and so now your total when you add all those up you start 2.1 million three million dollars of value six million dollars of value so a lot of it is an accounting game um, and when I say game it's not illegal it's just knowing where things actually belong and what's an actual investment what's an actual reoccurring operating expense when it comes to real estate now, and what's a normalized expense? Now, the same thing when I'm valuating prime painters or a business, businesses don't necessarily have a cap rate. Businesses have a multiple on earnings. Um, and so there was a company that we sold, and I'll just talk a little bit about this. There's a company that we sold, and the first thing the company did is they started letting some people go. And so I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, it's smart of this company because if they already have the infrastructure where they don't need all the people in the middle that were previous there, previously there, and if they can cut out three million dollars of salaries annually, and if they're you know if they're trading at fifteen times earning earnings, right? Let's say it's three million dollars of salaries they save times fifteen. Fifteen. That's forty-five million dollars of value they added to the deal the day after it closed, just because they had size already, just because they had an infrastructure already. So when you guys are hearing me talk about building an infrastructure, it's so that when we take on assets, the assets are going to get. The most attention the most bang for their buck and we're going to be able to raise the value of the property and hopefully have less waste um, we have more efficiencies right and so let's talk about prime painters prime painters there's a lot of things that are normalized expenses in our first year of operations the paint that we're buying uh the the tape that we're buying the masking paper rosin paper that we're buying those are all normal things the salaries of our uh or the the, the wages of our painters the uh the gas that our trucks use the gas that our power washers use those are all normal things right the equipment some of it's normalized that you're going to buy every year some of it's not because it's going to last a long time right so it's the, the deciphering between those uh whatever's going to last a long time that's not necessarily a business expense so don't count it towards your 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 earnings um and earnings are basically free cash flow after your revenue, your operating expenses, then you have your earnings. What what cash is left for an owner if he's not active in the business for an owner to take out if he's just as an investment, just as an investment. Um, so if we're looking at prime painters and 
I'm doing a lot of things in Prime Painters right now and have a lot of expenses right now that aren't actual operating expenses. We're spending way more. If you look at the first year, we're spending way more on advertising and marketing than we sh technically should be if you talk to the experts and the pros because I'm trying to build a brand and people got to hear about us. People got to know about us. So that extra expense, I'm not, if I were to go and sell the company, I'd actually take that out because, and, and once again, it'd be a negotiation with the buyer, but I'd be trying to take that out because it's not a normal expense. Once we build a brand, we don't have to keep spending the same percentage of revenue. And as our revenue grows, we don't have to keep spending that same percentage to keep building and driving home that brand as we get bigger. There's a lot of equipment that we had to buy year one. Those wouldn't technically count towards, and we had a lot of setup fees, right? So that stuff wouldn't technically count towards the earnings and the free cash flow because going forward, year three, that's not going to look the same. So if my earnings are, if it's look at, someone might sit and look at my earnings like, hey, there's, there's only $50,000 of earnings here through the first eight months of operations. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, actually, you know, there's probably more like $180,000 of earnings because a lot of these things are non-normal expenses. They're startup expenses, they're investments that are, we're not going to have to make again for some of them ever, uh, for some of them for four years, five years, 10 years on some of the equipment and stuff like that. So, and then I'm like, hey, and then when you annualize this, now now annually our earnings already right now are like 215,000 a month. You take a multiple of those earnings. Now our, our company's smaller, so it might be a, a multiple of three times the earnings, three X, four X, five X. I've just been saying three X for now. So that gives us, you know, Prime Painters being worth almost $750,000 right now as a company if I were to sell it off. And we just started from scratch, right? But now as we grow to a $5 million company, and as we have, you know, ballpark 20% of that's going to be earnings, we'll have a million dollars of earnings. Now you've got, we've got more structure in place for more structure and infrastructure and processes in place and standards in place. You get a higher multiple because when someone comes in and buys it, they can just let it keep running. They don't have to dive in because the infrastructure, they just got to make sure the infrastructure stays alive and keeps the gears stay in place. Uh, so now that million dollars of earnings is probably in the painting industry could probably sell at five times earnings. So now the million times five, we've got a $5 million company um, when you're at $5 million of revenue or something like that ballpark, right? And when you find the multiple, the company that we sold was a 15 to a 20 multiple because of the size. I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar company that bought it. So the size that they have and the size of our company that they bought was substantial enough uh, that the system and the brand and, you know, all this stuff and because of the sector and industry that it's in uh, is very hot right now, the multiple is 15 to 20 times the, 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 the EBITDA, which EBITDA is earnings. So that's a little bit of uh, the valuation of properties, valuation of, you know, businesses. I skipped the due diligence. I skipped the financials because that could be like, I could literally talk about that. I think for like six days straight, I could have probably talked about that topic. Um, but we got some side questions over here. Josh Eastman. I think it's a good. What the hell is that? I, I can't read it either. Tory, Tory, Tory. I think it would be good. Would be how you calculate some of those costs. Not sure which cost though. Josh, if you're still here, ask your questions again. Cause it, the, the, there's one big Joe Biden word in there that Joe would have said on the podium. And probably will say today. Tory Station would. All right, uh, Sal, thanks, thank you for the Casas. Glad to be here. He says, man, thanks for joining us. Those of you watching live, what, four people? Ten. Oh, damn, ten. My mom and dad are watching, so that's two. 
Your mom and dad are watching. That's four. We count as one five. My wife's probably watching downstairs. Six. Sixty percent of the audience is family and friends. Alrighty. How starts? How to structure deals to find investors if you don't have a lot of capital but want to start. You got to tell people where you're headed, what you're doing, what you're wanting to do, and you got to get out there and talk to 100 people. Go talk to 100 people between now and January 15th. Tell them your plan. You're going to find some that'll back you. I promise it. Out of 100 people, if you're willing to put everything that you have, and you might have $10,000 of savings when you say you don't have a lot, you might have $20,000 of savings. And if that's all you got to your name, but you're willing to put that $20,000 on the line into the deal, I, and take you to zero and then you say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to take care of this deal. Here's the upside of it. You'll be able to find an investor, but you've got to be able to talk to the talk, talk to people network. You can't be scared about telling people where you want to go, where you want what you want to be doing. Uh, you can't be scared of what they're going to say. I, people make fun of me all the time for a podcast. People make fun of me all the time and, and some very successful people make fun of me for the things that I do and I put out there and they think it's egotistical and whatever. I don't, I could care zero. I do not care zero because they don't understand what I'm ultimately trying to do. I'm trying to help a ton of people. I'm trying to grow my brand. I'm trying to bring more investors in by using all these uh, tools that we have. Um, so, and, and the same thing with my investing goal is I, you know, I tell people I want to have 50,000 units. Literally there's people that laugh. I, I started saying that in 2012 when I had zero and, uh, the first time I said it, someone laughed and I said, no, really? And so they didn't really take me serious and I, I don't, I just don't care. You gotta be in the mindset of like, you do not care what other people think. And I think that goes back to the whole COVID thing too, of lay down in your ball and like hope this thing gets over because you're scared of what people are gonna say. And it's like, dude, you gotta live your life. You cannot care about other people's opinions all the time. 50% of the people are gonna absolutely hate your guts and 50% of the people are, are gonna love you. That's look at the presidential election. 50% of people hate Joe Biden. 50% of the people love him, right? Um, and so anyone, 50% of the people hate Tom Brady. 50% of the people love him. So when you're successful at your craft, when you're good at what you're doing, when you're just starting something, there's going to be a lot of naysayers. There's going to be a lot of, and you just can't care. And so your question, start finding capital. You cannot care what anyone else, what mom and dad, your aunt and uncle, your grandpa and grandma, your sister, your brother, your cousins, your second and third cousins. Uh, you cannot care what your best friend from sixth grade says. You can't care what your best friend from college says. You can't care uh, what your girlfriend necessarily says. You can't, you've got to be able to, um, you got to be able to be fine with some of those people not agreeing with what you're doing. Uh, and so you got to put yourself out there. If you refuse to have courage, if you refuse to have cojones, if you refuse to like put yourself out there, you're never going to get to where you want to be when it comes to raising capital. That's the answer to that question. The Fish House Life, thanks for joining us. Guys, if, if you're watching the live stream, would appreciate it so much if you would share this. Uh, Josh, Josh uh, how do we calculate certain expenses before buying a property? Um, so Josh is just like due diligence and like calculating like what insurance is going to be and taxes are going to flip to and repairs and maintenance. I mean, for us, a lot of it is historical. We use the historicals, but then also we take into consideration what our current portfolio is doing, right? So there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, like we've done deals in the past where like an admin, someone will have an admin bucket, which includes, mm -hmm. you know, like certain accounting tasks, office supplies, software supplies, application fees. Uh, and, and it'll be a bucket of expenses. And for someone else running a property, it might be $60,000 a year. 
But for us in our portfolio, I know that it's not going to, I know that we might be actually for this property, like $32,000 a year based on what our current portfolio looks like. Right. And same thing with insurance, like insurance used to be an absolute crapshoot for me, but now we kind of have like a master contract. We have a much better idea of what our insurance is going to be. So I don't have to use the T12 number on the insurance. I can use what ours is actually going to be. I don't have to use the T12 number on the, all the administrative things because I know what our that our admin costs, depending on the type of property, the size of property, will be between $146 per unit annually up to $248 or something like $278 annually. So I know I have my numbers in a spreadsheet. I know my numbers, right? Same thing with contracted services. I know ballpark what we pay per acre of snow removal, per acre or half acre, whatever you want, whatever size you want. I know based on quantity and sizes, how much we're paying for that stuff currently with our vendors. So again, if, if, if a, another company right now in an area we're already operating where we can use the same vendors, if they're, you know, lawn care is $70,000 a year, lawn care and snow removal, I might be able to do a calculation and say, wait, ours will actually be closer to like 58,000 or, or I might realize, oh damn, ours is actually higher. Ours is going to calculate out to $78,000. So let me talk to this company that's doing it for 72 and maybe they're going to become a new vendor of ours, right? The uh, repairs and maintenance, I'm pretty much using historical numbers. But then again, going back to the previous question that we talked about, I'm also trying to decipher out what actually would be CapEx if, if CapEx isn't already included in that and what will go away if we're putting a lot of dollars into remodel units, knowing that if, if some people use a Band-Aid when they need to rip the whole thing out and fix the problem, right? And when, when, when owners use Band-Aids on a plumbing issue or whatever it might be, or, or appliances, and they just keep having these recurring expenses that they could just pay a little bit more to have the issue completely fixed for five years and they don't, I, I try to figure some of that stuff out. I try to adjust the repairs and maintenance that way. So a lot of this thing, when I was first doing uh, pro formas and the projections of properties, like the 88 unit building that we did, I was so far off years one and two was just unbelievable because I did not take for account like us having to redo the boilers, get new roofs, partial new siding. Um, I, I didn't account for a lot of that stuff. And uh, new garage doors, you know, the, the, the amount of issues we already had in the, the deferred maintenance that was there. But we put a lot of capital into it in the front end, and now that property's cranking. So when you're first starting, what I would recommend doing is using the actual T12 basically to a T. Um, but you're going to have to figure out like insurance and make sure that you're in a ballpark with an insurance agent because a lot of people will actually underinsure their properties, believe it or not. And if there's a serious catastrophic event, they'll be in trouble. Um, real estate taxes are an interesting one. That's always... Um, no, I know you do, Josh, but that was, I know you know the, the answer, but um, it's a good question for everyone else. Um, real, estate, uh, real estate taxes, those are always a little bit tricky because depending on the area, the county, uh, the city that you're investing in, the uh, mill rates are all a little bit different. And the mill rate is basically a multiplier on the new value. And different areas figure out, uh, have different, mathematical equations on how they figure out or different ratios that they use to figure out the actual assessed value. So like in Dane County, where we're buying properties, they'll take the purchase price and they can figure it out through the deed. They'll, they'll take the purchase price. And what they will do is they'll take 85 to 92% of that purchase price. That'll be your assessed value. And then they'll take the tax rate to that number. 
So now I know that, so I can be pretty close with our taxes. I still am always a little high in my performance with taxes because it's like, hey, they could change this at any time. Uh, and real estate taxes seem to do nothing but go up, but um, we're always pretty close. Um, so once again, that's that's a matter of looking up the property tax records online. You can you can go to the county, you can go to the city, you can go to the property address. And then what you can do is you can look at the tax bill and this is public information. You can look at the tax bill, you can see the current assessed value, you can see the tax rate, you can see the assessment ratio usually. So then you just take your purchase price. Now the same year, the first year that you buy the property, it'll, it'll be the old tax rate. It'll be the old tax amount. Whenever the property gets reassessed, that's when the tax will go up. It could be next year, it could be two years from now, depending where you're at, it could be three years, four years from now. Um, but you wanna be aware of that because our tax bills, typically when we buy something, our tax bills, in some instances of a property hasn't sold in 15, 20 years, our tax bills have gone on to double what they've been to the previous owner and what they were for the first year of operations for us. So that's probably the biggest one to make sure that you're kind of on the same page. And usually your lender uh, can help you with this because they, they, they're always doing transactions. They're pretty on top of it. They are good at helping you get a ballpark. Um, there's also tax consulting services out there that can help you figure that out. It, to me, it's not like, it, I don't know. I don't even know how I used to calculate it, but it shouldn't be something that should prohibit you from doing a deal. Uh, you still got to find a way to make the deal work. Just recognize that, mm -hmm. hey, your tax, your t depending on how, how long the property, how long ago the property sold and what the current assessment is, um, that tax number could do anything from go up 10% to go up, you know, to, to 2x in your year two, in, in the year, in the second or third year that you own it. So that's that. Um, okay, next question. Um, does promoted interest after preferred return decrease the investor's principal balance? So I think the question is relating to, you know, some type of private equity setup or a fund setup like what we have. And for us, it, this can be, this is the terms of your agreement. So you can make the terms, whatever you want it to be. You can make the, you know, um, promoted interest decrease the investors. And I think the language might be a little bit messed up here because the promote is actually coming to the general partner. So when we do a deal, how this works for us is basically there's the fund that has um, the class A investors and class A investors are people that are putting cash in and then it has class B investors who's the general partners who aren't actually putting any cash in. As general partners though, we do buy shares as class A. So I own, I own our properties through class A and class B. Class B I only get paid on class my class B shares in our properties if they perform and pay above a 6% preferred return to our investors. All the cash above and beyond that, 70% goes back to the investors, 30% is what we consider the promote, and the 30% goes back to the GP essentially for $0, right? A $0 basis. That's all for performance. That's a strictly a promote um, or a profits interest only. Um, that 70% going back to the investors for us, that does not, that just goes towards their total overall return. That 70% above the 6% preferred return does not lower their principal balance. The only things, once again, it could, it could in your documents, it could for us in the future at some point. Currently, it's not how it's set up. The only time uh, investors have their principal amounts reduced is in a cash event. And we, uh, our definition and our operating agreements, 
of a cash event is upon refinance or upon sale. So only sales proceeds or refinance proceeds that go back to investors will be what reduces their principal uh, and capital accounts, if that makes sense. So good question. You might want to answer that because it's, it's a later question. I don't know if we'll get to it. Which one? Um, the last two messages. Uh, Casas says, I live in Southern California. I want to start uh, raising equity, but don't think I should start here in California. Our state is crazy. Should I just look at starting in other states for sure? Because people are going to be leaving. People are already leaving New York like crazy going to, to, to Southern Florida. People are already leaving California, going to Texas, going to Florida. Um, so number one, the prices there in the uh, the mountain to climb over to get involved and get started there because of prices is going to be hard if you're just starting. Um, but you never want to buy on a budget. That's the first thing. With, it's one of the things with real estate. You don't want to buy on a budget. Um, but I would, I would find, I would get somewhere else that's a more business friendly state, um, or where people are moving to, or where the tax situation is a lot better. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would look at other states. I would look at, I would look at Texas. I would look at, uh, the Midwest. I would look at Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. I would look at, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, uh, Michigan's not probably not Michigan, probably not Illinois. I don't look at anything in Illinois. I don't think I'd look at anything in Michigan. Um, but Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, there's places in Missouri. Um, Minnesota is a place I would not go to. Iowa is a good place. So I would start looking at a lot of other places than California. I'd start looking at a lot of other places than New York and those Northeast states. Uh, what's more important to your cash on what's more important to me cash on cash or internal rate of return for me It's always been cash on cash um, Just because I'm always like, okay, if I'm putting this cash away, it's a simpler uh, formula to figure out um, But a lot of larger investors that we work with and with these funds and stuff They're worried about the IRR So it's become to this point where it's both when I'm just getting started. I strictly just look at the cash on cash um, especially if you're looking at only a five-year window, that's where I'd for sure look at cash on cash. A lot of times the IRR, um, I don't even know really how to explain IRR um, to a beginner. IRR is almost, is basically saying my return towards this option is basically, is basically this much more valuable than a return towards this option because you're taking another uh, interest rate and in, in including that in the IRR calculation. So, um, so yeah, it just kind of depends on what you're looking for, but cash on cash is, is still what I mostly care about uh, and it's worked. Um, but as I've started to do more, I've had to include the IRR calculations in all my things because the larger investors like to see the IRR. Uh, and actually they like to see both though. They'll look at the cash on cash and the IRR both. Um, I haven't yet come across anyone that's strictly just IRR, um, but they do, but a lot of people like to see it. So how'd your PM company structure look when you had much smaller portfolio management is hard without scale management is hard at scale management properties. I mean, I was talking to a guy that has 2000 units. He's like, management just sucks. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, you know, so we, we view our management company as, I mean, I don't necessarily care if I'm making a profit there or not. I want to be able to effectively and efficiently run the properties with talented people uh, and have an infrastructure to support the assets. 
So we stopped doing third-party management because it's just like this, like you gotta, you gotta grind it out to make a penny. It's just stupid. So, um, it, it, you know, that's why we needed scale, right? Everyone's looking at, you know, and I, and I didn't like dealing with our own assets in third-party management either. Cause we didn't have the scale at hundred units, 500 units, even, even at a thousand units, you don't have the scale to really have a quality third-party management company. In my opinion, you gotta have 2,500, 4,000, 5,000 units to have a quality third-party management company who really can make enough money to really care to run your properties efficiently. And so that's why we're like, well, screw it. We're going to do our own. And I don't really care if it's profitable, but now when we're doing it our own, I have to have a certain number of assets. I can't just have one single family home. Like so many people want to go do. I got to be the person doing it then with our four units our two, two, four units. I had to be available all the time to do it. And I couldn't go out. It was hard. It sucked up my time. I couldn't go out and buy new deals. So with us, you got to get to, you know, basically to have a full-time property manager, a full-time maintenance person, you got to get to a hundred units, a hundred units on one site, a hundred units on one site or within a pretty tight geographical location where it's just a couple minute drive or whatever. Um, that will be enough resources to get you one full-time somewhat qualified uh, person to manage properties and a one qualified maintenance technician. Um, but yeah, maintenance is tough because the, um, I've been talking to a lot of uh, people who are doing what I'm doing and you know, they, they're like, they're all seeing what we're seeing and turnovers decently high, but we're trying to change our culture a little bit. We're trying to change the type of people we're bringing in from the get go to try to retain people and, and keep our retention up. Um, but yeah, management is hard, not with, not just without scale, but management is hard with scale. It's hard to manage assets, scale or no scale. Next question. Do you think it helps your credit to pay credit bills late so you get charged interest or pay early? No, pay when it's due. So I don't pay early and I don't pay late. I've never, I, I you know, I don't know. We, we put between the properties and personally probably put 15, 20,000, well, and then Menard. I mean, we'll probably put 25,000, $35,000 of credit. Uh, we use credit regularly, credit cards regularly a month. We myself personally, I've never paid one cent of interest on a credit card ever. But I've also, I also do not pay them early. I schedule a payment on the due date. I, I from a cash flow perspective, I want to wait as long as possible to, to have an outflow, right? Um, so, so no, don't don't get charged interest on those. You know, only put on credit cards what you're gonna be able to pay off by the due date before you're charged interest. Um, and don't pay them early either. That's just my that's my uh, opinion from a cash flow standpoint. How many people we got live? Six now. Cool. Hunter Price. Advantages and disadvantages of purchasing real estate in different entities, trusts, LLCs, etc. Uh, every deal that we do, every business that we own is its own separate entity. So I don't know, we've probably got like 35 different LLCs, 35, 40 LLCs with how it, how it's all worked out, uh, right now. And the advantages are just because it, it just kind of is widespread. It makes it harder for people to find all the assets and drag everything in. Um, and just from a liability standpoint, you work with some lenders, they won't even, when you work with Fannie or Freddie, which are our lenders that we're, we're dealing with uh, on a few deals or a CMBS loan. I mean, you have to have single purpose entities that own the property. So, um, so yeah, we each, you know, just from a liability standpoint and accounting standpoint, um, you know, it's harder administratively. You have more tax returns, you got higher costs that way, but 
um, there's a lot of benefits to it as well from a liability standpoint. So it's something that we are, have always been advised to do and it's something that we pretty much always do 99% of the time. What type of ROI would you be willing to pay on a 100K investment? So does this mean, I guess I'm not sure if I'm following the question, what, what type of return would I want if I had 100K and invested it? Um, or if you gave me $100,000, what rate would I wanna pay you? I'm not, I, I'm not sure if I'm understanding the question. I mean, I pay a preferred return of 6% to our investors. And then after that, it's a 70-30 split. I get 30, they get 70. Once it's a 12% annualized split, and this is with $50,000 or $100,000 or $5 million. Once it's a 12% annualized uh, return for all those years, for not only the current year, but any previous year, it's a 50-50 split, all the cash going forward, 50% to me, 50% to the investors. Um, if I have 100K, um, I'm looking for, it depends on the deal. I mean, I'm looking for something that's anywhere, year one, anywhere from 6% to 12% year one, year two, anything that's anywhere from, you know, in that same investment, as we go to year two, it should be between seven and a half to 14% and kind of keep growing. Um, ideally, I like to get that 100K of principal back as fast as possible, whether that's two years, three years, five years, so that I can then go put that principal to work. Once you put that 100K to work, you always want it to work again. If that, if you get the principal back, so whenever I get principal back, like I said, we had a couple transactions over the last two years. All the principal, I was sure to put all the principal back to work. I never want to take principal out. And once I add to that principal, I never want to take that added principal out. I want the money to be working to me for me forever. So I've had cash events of, you know, $750,000, $300,000. And I make sure that the initial principal has been all put to work, but I'm double, triple, Quadrupling, um, quadrupling down. What would be after quadrupling? Sintupling, sextupling my investment. Uh, sextupling down, so six xing down, and I've been putting all the profits as well. So I was, I had three hundred and fifty thousand dollars come to me in September. I think a hundred thousand dollars of it was principal, um, and it was an investment that was held for three years, four years, and I still have 350 of the investment working in the investment. I only took 50% off the table. 50% was 350. I didn't just put the 100 back to work. I'm putting the full 350 to work because, I, and so now that, that, that full 350 has become my principal or will become my principal. So um, I don't know if that helps answer your question or not, but next question. I read on several blogs, the first place to start putting away money. And I read these questions out loud because I know we have a lot of people that listen to this while they're driving. So I'm reading the questions as we go. And I guess maybe I should have started saying that on episode one, but uh, so this is a longer question, kind of like a two or three part question. And I need a sip, sip of water before I start reading because I'm going a million miles a minute here. And I'm getting thirsty. Uh, so the question is, I read on several blogs, the first place to start putting money away after paying off debts is in an emergency savings account. How much do you recommend to have set aside for emergencies? And once you've reached that, where do you start investing next? Also, if I want to start a small business, is it more financially responsible to have a certain amount saved to invest in my business or take out a small loan? If it's the former, how much would you recommend having saved? 
So I guess the first question is about your lifestyle. I mean, for me, when I first started, I needed very little in emergency because I didn't have a family. I didn't have a house. I didn't have debts other than, you know, my student loans. I didn't, um, I didn't have the need for flashy things. I didn't buy a flashy car. So for me, it was relatively small. My emergency fund was like 2000 bucks. If that thousand bucks, um, if, if you have a family, you might want to have emergency fund of 6,000 bucks, 7,000 bucks. Heck, I know people that have gotten their, their financial situations and lifestyles to a point where it's like, man, I need a, I need a $40,000 emergency fund. So it's very, it's a very opinionated answer, uh, based on the individual, but the less lean you live life, I, I mean, be as aggressive as possible. And the younger you are and the healthier you are, be as uh, aggressive as possible, especially if you already have health insurance and stuff like that. Um, so for me, I mean, you know, I would say for most people, it's going to be between a thousand and 5,000 bucks. You know, if you have uh, living expenses for three to six months, I would say that you're pretty well set. Um, and then once you've reached that, where do you start investing next? So I'm going to start investing. The very first thing I'm investing in is things that are going to provide cash flow back into my pocket. This is why I can have the argument, the argument until I'm blue in the face about a home. The issue with a home is that it does not bring you an actual check or cash into your bank account every single month. So you want to find something and have the eye on something that can start to provide you income every single month. Um, and a lot of times actually where you start investing next is in yourself. So you don't even worry about the actual cash flow at first. You worry about investing in yourself. You worry about buying the right books. You can buy 250 to $350 worth of books and it will get open your mindset to a place of abundance and understanding where you can go out and figure out the rest of this. So you got to be able to invest in yourself. You got to be able to invest in your network. You got to be able to invest in uh, knowledge, but then you've also got to be able to have the courage uh, to go out and implement what you're learning. Um, if you want to start a small business, is it more financially responsible to have a certain amount saved to invest in my business or take out a small loan? Real estate, you'll want to take out a loan. If it's uh, like my painting company, we have zero debt there. Um, my management company, we relatively have zero debt there. So with an actual business, my mindset is do not borrow, do not go out and borrow against the bank, you know, right away. Um, if you need it to bridge a gap from where you currently are and you've been having success over the first six months or year in your business and you need to bridge a gap with some, uh, some borrowed funds, then do that, but don't do that right away. Uh, test your, test your business out first, right? And then before you pay yourself, take the cash flow that the business pays you, the profits that the business pays you, and put them back into the business. So now what you have to be able to do is you gotta figure out what your actual expense is and overhead is to produce the widget or service so that then you can mark it up so that you, sh you for sure have a profit. And once again, the freaking Democrats and, and these people, they think that all this money of a service and all this revenue is going into people's pockets. No, we have a profit margin. We have we have a margin on all of our services so that we can take the money and plow it back into the business to get more ladders, to get more paint sprayers, to get a better software, to get more and better people, right? So you gotta be able to figure out the costs, right? So let's say you have, let's say you've got, um, let's say you're in the, 
picture selling business. You take awesome pictures. People are willing to buy them, buy the digital downloads from you to use as stock photos or whatever. What are the costs that you have in it? And then how many pictures do you want to sell or have to sell to have that cost covered or to uh, hit a certain profit margin? Or if it's just one, you're doing one of a kinds. Okay, what was the cost on this? And what do you want your margin to be? There's so many people that are out there that they'll go give. This is why we can beat and have a successful business versus the painter who's a great painter but doesn't understand business. The guy who's all by himself, who is a great painter, doesn't understand business, meaning he doesn't understand what his actual costs are. He's just like doing whatever to get the job. So he's bidding and not really making any money. He's maybe paying himself just for his time. Well, he's never going to build a big business there if he's just paying himself for his time. So you got to figure out, so like what we did, I figured out what it costs us per hour to have a painter in the field. And then I figured out how much they can produce. So now we have calculations on, we know how much our guys are basically doing uh, on square footage per hour painting. We know how long and how many hours it takes them to tape off 40, 100, 200 linear feet of base trim, right? So we can calculate and Ryder's been doing estimates, right Ryder? We've got We've got like 40 different things that you're looking at when you go out and do estimates that we got a calculator on so that we know our costs, everything. Once we know our costs of our, of our service, of our labor, once we know our costs of the product that we're going to use, how many gallons of paint, what type of paint, what our cost is on those primer, tape, roller covers, whatever it might be. We've got everything, masking paper, rosin paper. We've got everything priced out. Now we've got our total costs by adding our labor costs and our, uh, material costs, we put that together and now we've got a multiplier or an inverse multiplier because we're dividing by a number. We got an inverse multiplier that includes our profit and how much we want to up, up, uh, market up. And so really like when you're looking at like Walmart, things that they're buying, things that they're selling to you for a dollar, they're probably buying for anywhere between 20 cents and take that back depending on the product it's things that they're selling for a dollar they're probably buying for and it costs them total all in cost it's probably costing them a total of 10 cents to 50 cents to buy the item to pay for the shipping to get it there to cover the labor and the burden of getting it on the shelves and then they mark it up right well now what do they do with that markup right they, they got profits they got they, they shove it back in to to employee bonuses or you know to hire more people to open more stores to, to pay for more software in their stores, right? So you got it. You got to figure out your numbers. So that's what I would do is if you're going to look to start a business, what's the business? Do it based off savings. Most businesses, I mean, I started the painting company with $4,000 and I was being aggressive because I was like, well, screw it. We're going to need this in a month. I'm just going to buy it now, right? I could have started the painting company for probably 800 bucks, maybe, maybe less than that. Probably less than that if I had to. Anyone can find a way to get 800 bucks extra in their hands if they're just being smart about what they're spending. Everyone else, everyone is so worried about having the newest iPhone that shouldn't have the newest iPhone. Dude, live on, live on the one that's three years, four years old and take that $1,000 and put it towards your business that you're talking about here. Buy six less pairs of shoes in 2021 so you have 300 extra dollars there. Buy five less shirts so you have, you have $250 extra there. Do not... Do not make your car payment go from $200 a month to $400 a month so that you can keep that $200 and put that towards your business, right? Now figure out what your business is gonna be. Figure out how much time it takes you to, to get that product ready. 
figure out how much the materials cost you, figure out, you know, what your overhead is, right? I would think a picture, if you're selling pictures, you probably don't have much overhead there. It probably doesn't take you too much time. But now as you scale a business, you've got to realize you're also, you're a business owner, but you also might be, you might be two people in, within the business. You might be the business owner slash investor, but you also might be an employee. You in your own company as an employee should pay yourself the regular going rate for the employee. Just because you're the owner doesn't mean you should pay yourself more for the tasks you're doing as the employee. The money that you're making as the business owner should be the profits of what's left over after you reinvest it back into your business. Too many people are paying themselves, being the business owner, they're paying themselves doing employee tasks that they could be paying someone else $55,000 a year for. They're paying themselves just because they're owner $300,000 a year. That's not how it works. It shouldn't work that way. Now, as you, as you figure out your cost and your time, you can grow because someone else that you get on your team, they, the cost on that, on that person, the burden should be the same as what it was for you if they're the true costs, right? And now you can put a profit margin, the same profit margin on those products, right? And so now you start to build an actual organization and infrastructure that then can go out and give you more dollars to work with. The more doubt, like profit is just a percentage. Right, so whether it's twenty percent or fifty percent, whatever, you you probably got to mark your products up fifty percent. Basically, if it costs you five dollars, you probably want to mark it up to ten, seven fifty to ten, and then there's going to be more costs that you'll have in between that five and the seven fifty to ten. But then you'll have like twenty percent profit or so, or discretionary income or what uh, that you can then dump back into the business to help grow the business. But the the percentage is just a percentage. So now, as you grow an organization and infrastructure and people. Those people are producing, and let's say it's $10,000 a month they're producing, whatever, right? Let's say you have, you you go from three people at $30,000 a month, let's say, and you're at 20% profit, so that's $6,000 a month. Let's say you go to 10 people, now you have $100,000 because they're each producing $10,000, your profit's still 20, and actually as you grow, you might have leverages uh, or efficiencies, so your profit might actually bump from 20% up to 22% on a larger number, Right. So now you have 20, if it's a hundred thousand dollars of producing on a 22% margin, you got $22,000 left over with to pay yourself each month. Plus pump back into the business towards, you know, new equipment, new software, make you more efficient, more advertising, right? Advertising costs money, right? Advertising on billboards or TV or radio or the internet. So that's, that's what I would uh, recommend. And if you got cash flow, you can have less in savings for a little while. Like I, I have zero issue when I'm doing some of these deals, I will write a, as large of a check as I can in. And for two weeks until I get paid again, until cash flow comes around again from the properties, I'll have zero in my bank accounts. I will write a check on this next deal. I'll write a check and I'll be close to zero until that deal closes in the next month when, when I get paid. Right? So when you start to achieve cash flow, that's why cash flow producing assets are so important in a house. Yeah, you might be able to build equity and get lucky and have a 3% annualized return or 10% annualized return, whatever, but it's not paying you cash today. Who is your favorite broker? And the guy that uh, asked this question is Brad Smith, who's one of the brokers. He did uh, 96 East and Springdale for us. But I thought it was an important question actually, because Brad knows this, like I'm not just using one broker. And like when I'm looking to sell a broker, just because Brad and I are great and we talk, you know, we're, we're buddies. He's done two great deals, brought two great deals to us, and he's always bringing us deals. It doesn't mean he's going to be the guy that sells my deals because he's got to be, he, he might be my favorite 
guy as a broker, whatever, favorite dude to talk to as a broker. Uh, and there's a lot of them out there. I got a lot of great, you know, friends or whatever that you want to, acquaintances that are brokers, but not one of you guys are going to get my business just because we're friends or because you're my favorite. Because uh, the favorite is a, is a deal on deal basis. And is what, you, what what have you done for me lately? It's, you know, it, it's a whole picture, right? What are you bringing uh, for deals? What, you know, how much is it costing me? Is it, how, what percentage are you taking and your firm taking when we go to sell the deal, right? I mean, I, just because I, just because we've had success in the past doesn't mean I'm going to be married to that same person forever, right? And um, that's why I thought it was important. Like, you can't just use your uncle as your insurance broker. You might have to sever that relationship at some point because it's the best business move. Now, I'm not saying you want to shop around every single thing every two months because you're going to ruin a lot of relationships that way and probably get people that don't want to work for you or with you that way. But it's good to spot check people every six or every uh, every year, every three years, depending on this, what service it is. It's good. You got to keep people from getting too fat off of you, right? Um, so I thought this was an important question to add because I know he was somewhat joking around and probably didn't think I was going to include it. And I don't even know if he listens to the show. But... Uh, you know, just because someone is your favorite doesn't mean that's who you do business with. You have to make the best decisions for your business. Um, your business is, yes, it's a part of you, but it's not you. It's its own living organism. And it will die if you make uh, emotional decisions based on who your favorite person is, who your relative is. Uh, so you got to do what's best for that living, breathing organism that is your business period, always and forever, or it will go away. How long are we going today? I mean, it's like an hour and 10 minutes. How many questions we got left? How many people we got live? Six. Okay, cool. Damn it, I forgot to do this on Instagram live. Um, how has adversity, and actually just hold on for those of you guys that are listening and or watching, I'm gonna get my Instagram live going here for these last couple questions. We could possibly make this live, but I'll let you know. Wait, say that again. It could possibly make the stream live. Uh, well, not not if I do it under. Uh, Data. I'll disc. Yeah. Data. Data. So if you're listening, hold on. So I'm just going live here. Live. Hold on. I'm gonna do the comment live on YouTube. The neighbors are out running around. Nice. They play a lot of hockey out there. Yeah, Hold on real quick if you're listening. I'm trying to pin this comment. There we go. All right. Uh, let's see. We are we've got a couple questions left. We've gone for an hour and 10 minutes already. How has adversity shaped your journey and what are your, some of your tough moments? Um, I mean, every deal is tough. Like you go through every deal and you're like, man, I got tens of thousands or hundred thousands of dollars on the line that are already hard in illegal fees, due diligence and whatever. And it could all fall apart and you might be out 10,000, 20,000, 150, 250,000, 300,000, but you got to be okay with it at some point. And that's why I think that actually the most successful people, even though society might label them as someone that's uh, just cares all about the money, they actually care the least about the money, about the money uh, than anyone else or, they, let me put it this way. They care less about money from the standpoint of like, they don't mind. If they lose $200,000, it might be 50% of their savings that they have right now. They're not so attached to the money. They understand that getting the deals done and, and the, that uh, the cost of business is sometimes things that just happen. 
right? So how has adversity shaped your journey and what are some of your tough moments? So the tough moments, I mean, closing some of these deals are, is freaking hard. I can go back and think about every single deal that we have done. And there's been a time point, time and uh, place where I've been like looking at myself in the mirror, like we're going to lose $10,000 in this deal. Cause we've already got 10, maybe on the four units or smaller deal, we had $10,000 hard of due diligence and attorney's fees that if it didn't close, we were going to be out that there's deals that we've had, you know, 500, $600,000 on the line of hard costs before we close where the deal, I'm like, this deal might not close. We might be out $500,000. Now that has not happened yet. I'm sure it will at some point, but those are tough. Those are tough moments where it's like, man, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. Right. You ask yourself that, like, Dude, do I really want to do this? Is this worth it? But then you just got to remind yourself, like, it's just a part of the process and adversity, the adversity that we've, uh, faced, um, it's always taught me a lot more and it's always made me do things a little bit different on future deals to try to negate the risk that I had out there on previous deals. And, uh, some of the things that made me feel like we were going through adversity, whether we were or weren't, because a lot of times it's just feelings. It might not even be the truth. You might not be facing that much adversity. It might just be how you feel about it. Um, so the adversity, you know, you're always going to face it. Anyone's successful. It doesn't matter if it's in sports in business, whatever your craft is. Um, there's always adversity. There's always things that go wrong. There's always tough moments. That's life actually in general. Just look at life in general. There's tough moments and the people that are able to overcome those are always people that become stronger and more successful in those areas in life typically um, if they don't let the situation break them completely. Uh, so as long as you bend, you don't break, uh, you're going to be okay. And those those tough times, the, they will go away at some point. You might have a long stretch where it seems like they never will, but they will at some point. Uh, next question. How many do we have left, did you say? This is the last one. Last question. How can I raise equity as a beginner investor? Um, 25 in California. I think I kind of hit on this one already earlier. So I think we just added it. Um, but the big thing is get out of your comfort zone. Get out there and uh, share. Um, get out there and share what you want to be doing. Get out there. like Being in California, like go to the coast. Go knock on doors up and down the coastline because there's money sitting there. And you're going to get your, the door slammed in your face a lot of times. But I promise you right now, you do it 100 times, 200, 300, 400, 500 times, you're going to find multiple people that will want to help you however they can if you show that you are 100,000% committed to what you are doing and uh, you work hard and you have great ideas and input and, uh, and if you're just willing to grow and learn yourself, you're going to find people that will want to help you. So that being said, I uh, just want to wrap up by saying Hey, 2020, this is the last time we're going to talk to you on 2020 as far as the, podca uh, the podcast and the Justin Spaulding show. It's our second episode. Hoping to do this forward into the future. Please like, uh, like it, comment, leave a question. Hope you leave questions for future shows when I, when I ask for them and when we start to gather those. Um, you know, I'm excited to see where this thing goes. Our plan is to do them live once a week on YouTube. Hopefully get the recordings up on you know Spotify, uh, whatever else is out there soon. I don't know how long. Does it take long to set? I don't know how that works. So we got to figure that out. Um, get your book. Yeah. Get my book. Go to www.justinspalding.com. I know we've had some definite shipping delays. I, hopefully a lot of that stuff is going to be done with uh, now and we'll be back to regular shipping with Christmas being done. Uh, but definite shipping delays on that. But that being said, go get the book. We've had great feedback on it. I've literally had dozens of people in the last two weeks reach out to me and say, hey, your book and your free content 
so basically paying me a total of $25 from the book, which $25, I'm not, I mean, I'm not making the most amount of money out of all the things I've going from the book. Um, the book and following me on, on social media and everything has made the dip, world a difference to them and their investing life, financial life, money, learning, all that stuff, just self-growth. So would definitely appreciate if you just like the channel, follow me, share me with other people, join us live every time, listen to this stuff, put it out there to be able to, you know, yeah, selfishly help my brand grow, but also I love helping other people. So we want to grow this thing together. Uh, would love to hear about your success stories. Love to hear your questions. Until then, this has been the Justin Spaulding Show, episode two. We'll see you next week with Justin Spaulding, episode three. We'll talk to you soon. Happy New Year. Have a safe New Year's Eve. Peace. I never know how to end.